Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Adel Marcy Unplugged. I'm your host for the most, as always, Adel Marcy, and today we've got none other than my friend who I've not spoken to in God knows how long, Colin the Riot Terrio. Uh, that is forever his nickname for me because that's how I remember <laughs> his name. That or Stalin Stereo, but I was like, no, we're just going to with the right. It's a lot easier for me to remember. Um, <laughs> so Colin's site as well, the show, is always sponsored by AdelMarsh.com, but today's sponsor is also uh, thecultofcopy.com or cultofcopy.com. Links in the description below, as always. Colin, pleasure to have you on here at last, my man. How's things? Uh, it's good, man. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's been so goddamn long since we spoke. Let me the last. Yeah, time. yeah. I mean, like I, we first met, I think like the cult of copy was very new, if it even nope. existed. Yeah, didn't exist. We've, I knew you. That's right. That's right. We we were Skype buddies for a while. Yeah, I knew Colin before he had a beard. Now just imagine <laughs> that. That's how long I've known this guy. I think I knew him in 2010. It was just shortly yeah. after you left working with Jenkins. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, 09 is when I left, like the tail end of 09, and yeah. I really got started as a freelancer in 2010. Yeah, I remember, she had your blog talk, talk radio show, and uh, I used to like frequently comment in and stuff. Oh, right, right. That's how, yeah. God, like, that, that's still ages. Boring. Yeah, that's how long it's been, because the thing was, you, uh, God, what's his name, McLeod, Brian McLeod, mm-hmm. I think he was on yep. there, Kevin Rogers was on there, Ben Johnson... Uh, Heather Klaus, like these are all the people who are literally on the shows live right around the same yeah, time yeah. Colin was. And I remember just sticking around and you and I talking every so often, just Skyping each other and sending each other really weird right. shit. So it's always fun. But wow. It, hell, this is how far it was. Your firstborn son wasn't even born. I don't think he was born around the time. No, he there. was he, he was born in uh, November 2012. Yeah, because he's five. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wouldn't that be 2011 because he's five? Or I is, guess. Is yeah, that makes five? sense. Yeah. Numbers are not a copywriter standpoint. It's more or less we're good no. with words. We're good with words. No, I'm a, I'm a worder, not a mather. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason, my brain just went to the Rick and Morty episode where he's like, if you want to, if you want to date someone smart, you should date so, a languager. <laughs> just concept. So anyway, how's things going, man? I mean, the cult of copy has kicked off to probably one of the biggest and most badass groups on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, there's there's bigger marketing groups, but they promote themselves and probably have like a lot of de- like I know my group. Like, uh, we hit thirty thousand, and then I started another purge where I just kind of go through and kick out people that don't look like they're contributing anything, or I can't really tell there's a reason for them to be there. They're always invited to come back, but I do kick inactive people out just to help with the algorithm and make sure group members see the stuff in their feed without having to come to the group. But, uh, yeah, I, they're, they're bigger groups, but they market themselves and they probably have a lot more dead weight than I do. We hit, we hit 30,000 and it's still just word of mouth and, uh, you know, whatever Facebook does for internal promotion. Cause I don't, I don't advertise it anywhere that the group exists or anything. So, uh, kind of, Kind of true though. Like you, you literally are the only guy I know that's kind of like built a group organically. I think the only other person is Ryan Stewman, but I think he also he doesn't run ads. He just gets everyone to add everyone else. But you're the only one that's got like an, an active, I think sixteen thousand plus people now. No, we hit we hit thirty. We hit thirty thousand people, and uh, I knocked it down. It's like 20, 29 or twenty eight now. Oh damn! 
Man, it's been, that's how long it's been. Like, I was looking at the numbers the other day, and for some reason, I think my brain just saw 16,000 for something else, and it's just like, associated. yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a, there's a crap load of people, and there's a good number of people on there that are like heavily well known. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's one of those things once you hit uh, a critical mass, the people who are being talked about want to peek in and see what's going on there. So, I don't know who's currently a member, but at any given time, the guys that you mentioned, uh, Brian McLeod and uh, Kevin Rogers and Frank Kern's been in there a couple of times. I don't think he stays a member, but he's popped in to respond when people start a thread about him. Uh, who else? Kilstein was in there for a long time. I don't know if he still is. Uh, I know Toe Crack is in there as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I it, it originally started out as like... Uh, just a discussion group for colleagues, people I would have considered like coworkers, basically all the people we used to chit chat a lot with on Skype. Yeah. And, uh, that was the reason you and I actually added into that because we were part of the copyrighting cartel. Remember Jason set that up a really long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had, I had had my own little Skype group for a little while and then, uh, it, it, I, I put it on Facebook and entirely because I was already spending a lot of time on Facebook. Uh, in fact, at around the time that I was starting the cult group, I actually was thinking I would have to do like a like a V bullet and install and run a forum. Um, and it turns out I didn't have to, so thank Bless goodness you. for that. That's why. So yeah, like I still re- I remember when you uh, retired because that was the thing you you worked freelance for a little while and then you you hit the retirement button you dropped that really good retirement course package that you had out. Yeah, yeah, and that was actually the content and that probably made my first three cult of copy products. I just redid the same material and associated it with the brand, yeah. but uh, yeah, it was like a multi-part webinar thing. Yeah, yeah I, I my my freelance career was relatively short, but I had also been a full time copywriter at a company for three years before that. So um, when I went freelance, my goal was not to be like a career copywriter. I wanted to get a few projects under my own name and the public eye so I could claim those results as like an expert mm-hmm. and then parlay that into just being a general copy and marketing expert consultant rather than doing all the client work myself. Cause as fun as that is, I would rather not work than work. Yep. I so <laughs> it, it took me a couple more years to actually hit that area of uh, understanding. Cause I, I left the copywriting cons- game for a little bit for about mm-hmm. two, three months. I loved consulting, I really do, but honestly, I I think this is the clients I was working with at the time. Uh, no offense to them, it's just that it was like constantly just taking no time off. It just burns you out. Yeah. So I just hit that point. But speaking of which, something I do want to like revisit here because um, we speak all the time about this. And it's usually what you used to talk about, what was it, features, advantages, and benefits. That was yeah. Jenkins' uh, whole thing on how he, how he taught bullet points, right? Yeah, I'm not sure like if he invented that or he got it from somewhere else. I've seen it all kind of places. I think it's fairly uh, well known. Um, but yeah, that's it's like a three point bullet writing style uh, that I learned from him, and then I took it a step further to do um, flaws, disadvantages, and detriments. So FDD, and you sort of 
write the negative version of each positive bullet you've come up with and then use that earlier in the letter to describe the problem. Okay. And so and uh, what happens is they read the problem description that's bulleted and they accept it. And then when they read your product description with the bullets that reverse those negative bullets, it feels like it's it's checking off all the issues that they need to address. So it really makes your product feel like it fits their problem, even though you describe the problem to them, if that makes sense. Oh, entirely. So that's basically kind of saying that this is the diagnosis you, you have, and here's the medication for said diagnosis that you have. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've always uh, sort of developed those in tandem side by side, and then you kind of write the sales letter around them, because uh, I'm a big... I'm a big believer in uh, selling solutions to problems. So no matter what you sell, it's a solution, and you got to figure out what the problem is and who has that problem. That's the marketing side: is who has the problem that this thing solves, and how do we get at them? And then once once you know that, it's pretty easy. I mean, I don't know. There's other kinds of marketing where you do cold traffic and you try to sell to everyone, but I always found it's easier to make the most money in the smallest amount of time to find the guy who's thirstiest for what you got, you know? Yeah. It's always the best thing to do. I mean, Halbert said it best. If you want an, advantage, an unfair advantage in the marketplace, it is have, um, have a crowd of people that are hungry. It's like, give me a hot dog stand with like a crowd of hungry people and I'll outsell your fanciest hot dog in the world. Yeah. Yeah, 10 to 1, that's what it is. But like jumping off of that, like could we expand a little bit more on the whole problem side of stuff? Because creating a solution, a lot of people seem to do that, but they're not very good at what we, what is essentially agitating said problem. Yeah. So I how, mean, how would you go about doing that? I mean, I look at, like the way I agitate a problem is you get to what, what the core of it is, right? So whatever product you have, you figure out what, what the core problem they have. Like, why, what is that product going to help them overcome? So let's say it's like, a, you know, a weight loss product for the sake of argument. And the core problem is, like, you want to lose physical weight, right? Like, you're fat, you want to be skinny, right? That's, that's the main problem that it is going to solve for them. But you expand it. You look to what other parts of their life does that problem touch you know home life work life uh social life how does being overweight make those areas of their life unpleasant you can get fairly detailed with it from when you wake up in the morning to you getting dressed taking a shower driving to work what's work like what's lunch break like what's the afternoon like you know you you can really dive in and get it from their perspective, what that problem is like to live with, right? And then you look, I call those uh, ripples, because it's like if you throw a stone in a pond and the ripples expand outward, so that core problem of being overweight is the stone in the pond, what else in their life are the ripples touching, right? So mm -hmm. what that does when you describe that, it suddenly makes it so there's no aspect of their life they can experience where they don't feel like their weight is a problem. Like there's no escape from it. You basically walk them through their day-to-day -day existence and point it out so that all day long it's a problem now, right? Yeah. Then uh, I look to what are called uh, the dominoes. So being overweight, 
creates a chain reaction of problems that can expand or get worse based on that. So obviously that's an easy one because being overweight creates health problems. It creates problems with your heart. It creates problems with your circulation and create problems with your breathing and cause sleep apnea. You could die in your sleep. It can, uh, you know, cholesterol, uh, all sorts of issues that being overweight sets up and creates to where if, if you don't fix it now or do something with it, it's going to get worse and worse and potentially irreversible. Uh, like I said, weight loss is easy because it's built in basically that being overweight creates more health problems. But in other avenues, depending on your product, you would have to get creative there and say, you know, uh, if it's if you sell an investment newsletter and the problem is you're not making enough money with your investments, looking at the dominoes would be, you know, uh, you're not getting the returns, so you're not rolling those returns over into more investments and 10 years down the line, you're going to fall far short of your goal because uh, you're not getting the dividends you should. That would be one example of a domino there. You might have to get more creative, but I think you get the basic idea. But by doing that, the idea is you take a single problem and you make it fill up and affect all these different areas of their life, and then you make it extend from the present into the future. So now a little problem that they thought, you know, I have that, but I'm not really thinking about it. Now it's pervasive and urgent. And then when you have a pervasive and urgent problem, you want a solution all the more. Yeah, that makes complete sense because now you've actually gone ahead and given them every reason under the sun. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really am a strong believer in doing it the way that I said where you walk them through a day in their own life from the point of view of yourself and saying, you know, this is what it's like when you're overweight or this is what it's like when you have a job that you hate and you want to escape the rat race and be rich or whatever the case is for your prospect. You walk them through their life and they're reading along and they're agreeing with bits of it and disagreeing with the parts that don't jive with them. But what that hopefully does is if they walk away from your sales page without buying just then, you've infected their brain with thinking about that problem in all these different places, right? Uh, one, one version of this I did that was very successful that was for a, you know, start a side business from home project. And the description that I did was like, you know, you wake up in the morning after hitting your snooze button too many times, so you're running late, you take a quick shower, barely see your wife and kids before you get in the car to hurry up and get trapped in rush hour for an hour. You get to work. You sit in your cubicle under the shitty fluorescent lights. Your manager comes over with his coffee breath and talks to you for 45 minutes about fucking nothing before you even get to check your emails. And now it's already almost lunchtime. You haven't done shit yet for the day. Blah, blah, blah. You just kind of like keep compounding it. And the goal is if you if you walk away from that promotion without buying that thing, hopefully you're going to think about it on your next drive to work that any of those things happen. I think I even talked about, you know, the same five songs playing on the radio over and over for months, the same billboards over and over again. You're just basically asleep at the wheel, stuck in rush hour traffic. Uh, just painting that picture so that the next time they go through it, they'll think of your product and the problem that they have. And it, it, I tend to think once you make them aware of the problem and they see it everywhere, the fact that they know where they can get a solution starts bothering them. You know, it's like I could, I could get out of this 
I know how to stop this. Why don't I just go buy that thing? That makes complete sense. So when you were actually creating, because I saw you actually talk about this, and this is something I did want to touch on as well, because I think it'll help a lot of people uh, out. It's the idea of pre-selling content before it actually comes out. Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, this is a great way to do it, what you just explained, but I mean in the sense of like creating blog posts and emails. Like, yeah, so you just, you, yeah, yeah, you take that same problem agitation stuff that we talked about already and you can break it into pieces. And what you do is whatever your niche is, you create content around educating people about the problems that they'll run into, the roadblocks, the obstacles, the gotchas, whatever it is, you tell them, well, as you explore this topic, these are things that are going to cause problems for you, right? That feels very altruistic. It feels like you're giving them value, but you're not really giving them anything to do. You're just telling them what to watch out for, what to diagnose, what to, what to see, right? You're not giving them anything to do. And what that does is it sets them up to where they have a head full of problems that need solutions, and those, those problems have certain facets in their mind because you've described them a certain way. So when you eventually come along and offer a solution, instead of interrupting their stream of value, which is your content, you're offering even more value because the value that they're receiving has been problem-based and you're offering a solution. So in their mind, they're like, obviously the solution must counteract all the problems we've been discussing or else why would he tell us about it, right? So they presume that your product is good and full-featured and takes care of everything the right way without you having to come out and say it because they associate it with the content they got from you ahead of time. Yeah. That's really true. Now, kind of switching gears for a second here because there's always a... Th that I have this theory that like the way I get my ideas are mostly to do with... like uh, well, It used to be reading books, but now it's actually just reading... Uh, screenplays for games, like plot points for games, and also movies. All right. So, what's one of the ways that you actually come up with the ideas that you do? I mean, the way they came up with a hook for, um, I think I used this for years, and I don't know if you remember it, but I came up with this uh, email ages ago about uh, Frankenstein's monster and related to how that's actually a business. Um, right. And again, that was a movie reference. I've done loads more of that with gaming and, you know, detective work uh, and whatever it is yeah i mean it, it it depends on your audience for me the way i've built my current business i put on display the things that i'm interested in so i've written again like same thing as you where where i think i'm a little older than you but we're roughly in the same generation so the the cartoons that were popular when i was a kid the games that were popular when i was younger uh things that are coming out now that have nostalgia effect like i'm i'm interested i haven't seen it yet but the new spider-man movie is out it's i was amazing. really into nice i, I was into spider-man as a kid uh I, I collected the comic books it's a it's a character that people connect with obviously it's a hugely popular piece of intellectual property but lots of people my age are like, like if i meet a person my age and they say they like spider-man as a kid I could probably name issues of the comic book that they would remember having uh, from the time. Uh, so really, that's what it's about. So I built my business around the things I'm actually interested in, but I'm sharing common points that we have 
beyond marketing, right? So my audience is built around marketing and copywriting, but I want to connect with them outside of that as though we're friends in real life. Because that's the difference between business associates and friends, are that business associates, you really only talk about business and you're friendly within that context. But people you're friends with, you talk about business, you talk about movies, you talk about food, you talk about all the things that you're interested in that you have in common. So sharing those with any given audience can create rapport. It creates a feeling like we're an us and people who aren't like us are a them. And the things that you share will depend on who your audience is, what, how old they are, where they're from, uh, what they tend to be interested in demographically. So like if you're selling an investment newsletter to aging baby boomers, you won't be talking about Super Nintendo games as a common point. You know, uh, but you find the analogies that work, you know, whether it's like, you know, 13 lessons Andy Griffith taught us that kids today could use (laughs) that would appeal to older people. Right. Yeah. Um, you find, you find the things that, that they're familiar with that'll help explain the complicated things that you want to explain to them. And you can use those as metaphors or just ways to express like we're in the same world because we've seen the same things, right? Yeah. So that's that's really what you're saying when you share non-niche focused things with your audience. What you're trying to do is say like outside of this, outside of my expertise in this particular topic, we have had common life experience, right? Like we're mm-hmm. part of the same loosely affiliated tribe. We like the same sports teams. We have the same morals. We have the same values. We grew up similarly. And the reason you want to express that to people is what it does is it lets them start to trust your point of view and your opinions because they start to feel like, well, I don't have all the facts. But if I did have all the facts like Adil does, I would come to the same conclusion that he has. Like I trust his point of view because he's shown we come from the same world, right? So when you get followers and audience members that connect to you in that way where they're like internally trusting your opinion about things they don't know about, I mean, what better selling position is there when, when they feel like, well, I could research all this, but I'll just trust Adil's opinion because I know we're, we're very similar. Yeah. So that, that's really the whole point of sharing all of this, whether it's current events or you know, uh, time appropriate pop culture references or whatever the case is. Yeah. Or oh, it's, well, my love of my cat who's being a gigantic asshat right now. I apologize. Sure. Just, just no worries. That, that tends to happen. But jumping back towards the Spider-Man thing, so I didn't want to talk about this. It's probably one of the best Spider-Man movies I've ever brought out. Yeah, I was excited about it. Again, no spoilers for me, please, because I haven't no, seen no, it. But no, no spoilers given. As... As a fan, what interested me about it is, uh, first of all, like he looks like a teenager instead of a 30-year-old going to high school, so that's yeah. nice. Um, and then uh, like I didn't like the Andrew Garfield ones because they made him like like an outsider because he's emo instead of that he's a dork. Yep. So I feel like they brought some dorkiness back with the current character because I feel like that's really part of why he is the kind of hero he is is because he's a dork. Like he's not angsty. He's just a dork. Yep. Um, so 
that was exciting. And then the main one is just seeing him in a Marvel universe because I feel like it's, it's the, the character of who Spider-Man is makes sense in a world where there's other superheroes who are older than him. Right. Like when you read the comics, the way he behaves is because he's like, I want to be a superhero like, you know, Iron Man and Thor. But I'm just a teenage kid and I can only, you know, hang out in my neighborhood because I got to take care of my aunt. Like, whereas in the previous movies, because they didn't have all the properties interlinked that way, basically Spider-Man's the only superhero in the universe that exists at all. Right. Yeah. So it's a subtle thing, but I feel like it it adds a lot to the character to show him in the context that he was created in, which is superheroes are real. I'm a teenager who accidentally got superpowers. So how do I try to be those kind of heroes? Yeah, it's definitely. So, yeah, I was excited to see it for that. And uh, what really got me interested in is I saw a behind the scenes reel of uh, what's his name? Tom Holland doing actual like gymnastics and parkour for the role like he's not cgi like he can do all those crazy flips himself yep uh so i'm like that's cool like that that's something they haven't had before it's usually as soon as they put on the mask it's a stunt man um yeah which is nice to actually have on this yeah i just uh it, it looked good to me and i like i like the vibe of it i really enjoyed what he brought to um that captain american movie where they premiered him yeah. so uh yeah i'm, I'm probably gonna see it I might even see it this afternoon after we get off the call. Depending. <laughs> I expect a message afterwards to know your opinion on this, but I'm going to just say this much. This is not a spoiler, but keep an eye out for the amount of Easter eggs that are on this movie. It oh, yeah, yeah. I heard about it. They, it's it's very, very dense with uh, other references. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I'm into like, it. It's all callbacks. Like, um, that's again, because you grew up on Spider-Man like I did. Because um, I love the animated series growing up. So a lot of the characters there are actually... You know, there's mentions and stuff like that, all this, like the other, all over. But what I love most about this is um, Michael Keaton, isn't it? And yeah. Michael, and Keaton plays an ama- he's an amazing actor anyway. He yeah. Can, he mixes the the right amount with any movie role I've seen him, and he mixes the right amount of jokey and fun, but yeah. old guy that's grumpy and can kick your ass. Yeah, I'm gl- I'm glad to see him being a villain. Um, for a long time, when he was kind of out of the loop. One of the last movies he did that ended up in theaters was uh, Batman, wasn't it? I, no, I yeah that I mean that's more recent. That was like his comeback, but for a long time when he was kind of out of the spotlight, he had played a villain, and I can't remember the name of the movie. I want to say Andy Garcia is the good guy in it, and it's basically like he's a convicted criminal, and he's an like he's gonna he's gonna die, but they're taking his organs basically like like to give to a cop's kid it's very cheesy like cat and mouse setup but basically they take this dangerous criminal to the hospital to harvest his organs and he escapes and takes the kid hostage or something but it was the first time i had seen michael keaton be a villain because up to that point he had been like in gung-ho and mr mom and batman and multiplicity and like he's a good guy and all of those yeah Yeah, so this was yeah that was him and beetlejuice I was going to say, was it Desperate Measures that you were thinking of? Yeah, yeah, that must be that's it. That's the one. Yeah, that's um, the one. But yeah, he was, it was one of those where you're like, wow, that I had never thought of him as a villain. Uh, so I'm excited to see him in that capacity. But while we're talking about like self-referential movies like that, had you seen um, Baby Driver? Oh, dude, that movie's amazing. 
It is. It is. And it's funny because I, I, th- this struck me and it, because you're bringing it up, it reminds me of it. I, uh, one of the reviewers that they quote and like the marketing material says like it's the most original movie in years. And I thought that was funny because being a fan of the heist film, particularly the getaway subgenre of heist mm-hmm. films, it's it literally references every single one. It's like it's Tarantino esque in how much it borrows from every other film ever made yep. in that genre. So I thought it was funny that someone who's not steeped in that saw it as being completely original, <laughs> when really it's it's just a collage with very tiny pieces. Yeah. Uh, but like, it's, pulled, it's pulled together really really well it is it is yeah. and and like it's funny because you you mentioned easter eggs and easter eggs when you put when you put those in things this is good for people who do like long-term audience based marketing little end jokes for your audience that only they get again increases that rapport and makes them mm-hmm. feel like they're a community and that movie has so many references that it's a good movie even if you don't get any of them. But if you get them, you realize it's like a love letter to an entire genre of films. Yep. So for, for me, it's the same way. Like if you if you watch Kill Bill from Tarantino, having not seen all the movies it references, it's still good. But when you know when you get every little bit of it is referencing something else from like her yellow outfit with the black stripe yep. to you know, the sound it makes when she sees red and, and goes into kill mode. All of those are references to other movies that if you know them, it's like, wow, you smashed all that together in a unique way. But I just I, I guess my point is originality can be overrated if you can put something together that just shows a deep knowledge of your your niche or your genre. It's so true because you actually literally took the words right out of my mouth. Um, I was just about to say like how building Easter eggs in your marketing or in jokes is a great way of building rapport with the people that you're around. Yeah, I mean, all like uh, it's it's I th- I think it was Sugarman that said something about like uh, you can use jargon to sh- like you're not trying to confuse your audience, but you want to show them just enough that like the niche can be confusing, but I'm an expert in it. So you like name drop technical terms that you're not expecting them to know, but you want them to know that, you know, and Easter eggs, Easter eggs and end jokes are just a variation of that same thing where it's like, you want to show them that, that you're a master in your field and like nothing comes up in your field that you don't know or can't have an opinion on, or you're not, referencing or you understand so like for me i i'm not as up to speed on which copywriter wrote which letter or you know who the gurus are but i've studied all the underlying psychology so if someone explains oh have you ever heard of this thing it works like this i'm like oh yeah that's this confirmation bias uh or uh cognitive bias or that's this logical fallacy or or whatever so like I don't know, just just showing those little references definitely can position you as an authority figure because it shows that you've you've been immersed in your genre. You're you're steeped in it and it just oozes out of you in a million different ways, which makes you valuable. It makes you interesting to them because they know they can pump you for information and you'll have it. 
Yeah. That's very true. Just, it's an insane amount of knowledge that you usually tend to drop. So my brain's just kind of going, dude, just try and catch everything that he's saying right now because it's, <laughs> it's remembering stuff that you remember, but it's kind of going, oh shit, yeah, how did I forget that one? Um, one of the things that I really like as well, you can't do it so much in the digital age. I mean, you can, but not many people do because they get really finicky about it, is spelling errors. And I think Joe Sugarman actually did this brilliantly. Again, it's um, the idea of getting someone to actually read your entire letter. And that uh-huh. is um, getting them to find the spelling mistakes that you've made in the sales page. And depending on what number they enter is the amount of a discount that would get off your product. <laughs> so That's interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, Sugarman did it. I think it was for, a, it wasn't a ski lift. It was something that he couldn't get a discount code for. They wouldn't let him sell it at the price he wanted, but they would let him run promotions. So the story goes that he wrote an ad and he made 10, like, I think it was 25 spelling mistakes. And the most people got was 24 and everyone missed that one last uh-huh. spelling mistake that he made. And he wrote in the headline, it was like, due to um, misspelled words in this page, for every word that you find that is misspelled or incorrect, uh, send it back with your order and we'll give you X percent off. For And then he just goes, here's how much each word is worth. If you get all, if you get all of them, he didn't tell them how many it was. If you get all the, if you get the ones that you find, we'll give you that percentage off. Mail it back. And what do you think people did? They read the entire letter looking for mistakes. Yeah, that's always a good trick to use. Um, the way I've used that in the past is I, I, I say you want to give people a completely arbitrary reason to go and read the sales letter, even if it doesn't appeal to them. And it's especially handy if you work in the marketing field, like selling marketing products to businesses, because you can always say, even if this promotion doesn't appeal to you, you should go check out how they put together their funnel and just look at the quality of the copy. And that gives people an additional reason to go look when they maybe wouldn't otherwise have had the time. Um, But it could be anything, literally just any additional reason to go check it out other than read this advertisement and buy this product. Uh, you know, it, it, I don't know to what degree that kind of thing boosts conversion across the board, but it definitely, it definitely snaps people out of it and gives them a different way to read things. And then of course, if you go and read an ad for whatever reason you are reading it, it may still have its effect on you. Yeah. It really does. I think Carlton said it best, which was that you want to make sure that your the person reading it stays up in the middle of the night thinking about it. Like you just said, you put that idea in their mind and it infects them. Yeah. That's what you really want. That being said, however, like um, referencing back to like childhood cartoons and stuff, um, did you watch Logan? I did see Logan. Yeah. What did you think of it? I mean, I, I like how those X rated and stuff. Well, R-rated, not X-rated, R-rated. Yeah, I liked it. It was, uh, it's interesting that comic book movies have gotten that developed where you could do a story like that and have it be a hit. Because growing up, when, like, like they didn't used to have comic book movies. That wasn't a thing. Like, uh, they had Superman in the late 70s, early 80s, and then, like, Batman didn't come out until, like, 89. 
And after Batman, they had a few, but it wasn't until like X-Men came out in 2000 that they had Mm -hmm. another resurgence and then a few shitty ones. And then Iron Man brought it back in like, was it 07? Oh, yeah. So it it went in cycles for a while, but now with the sophistication that all of these Marvel movies coming out in the same universe have had, I know uh, X-Men are still over at Sony and they're not part of that, but the, the development of the characters to the point where enough of the audience can go along for that ride without needing to be like, this is Logan, codename Wolverine. Here's his origin again and again and again. Because you really can't do those complicated stories unless the audience can follow along. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I mean, ima- imagine trying to make, a, like, uh, Age of Ultron as the first movie. Like, there's <laughs> no way you could do it. They literally had to have all these individual movies so that when the movie th- starts, you're like, oh, that's Thor. I know who that is. You know, like it, it, it's only just now gotten to the point where mask pop culture, as far as superheroes are concerned, have gotten that complex. But for what it is, I really liked it because it's, it's a superhero movie without superheroes. Like they have superpowers, but that's not what it's about. Like they're not fighting some world stopping menace. They're just trying to stay alive. Um, so within that context, I thought it was really interesting, um, Especially since it was really different than the comic book material they kind of based it on. It was it was really unique unto itself. It it referenced Old Man Logan, yes. the comic book series, but it was very very different. They didn't go yeah. with that at all. Like Old Man Logan has like the Hulk's inbred Kids. children run <laughs> run uh, the entire West Coast in a post apocalyptic America. It's very it's very it's way more bananas than the movie is, but. Uh, I was hoping they would actually use Old Man Logan, but I'm glad they didn't because they changed it the whole way. The Westchester incident, um, they they totally yeah. completely changed that. And again, for people that are fans or people who are actually interested, let's go read Old Man Logan. Just like YouTube it, you can watch comics. Yeah, the, explain, I, I, I would say I would say uh, at least check out the mini series that they did. Basically, what it was is they did that thing they do sometimes in the X Men continuity where. They just throw like a random, unrelated short story "what if" thing in the middle, and it like one, it went from one issue of just being regular Wolverine to like, okay, now we're doing Old Man Logan for a few issues, and then it went away. But it was so popular, they did a spinoff series, and in my opinion, the spinoff series is not as good. So if you're if you want to check it out, at least just check out the original mini series because it's it basically has a beginning and an end. It's not meant to continue on. They just tacked a series onto it but yeah i read it i read the graphic novel of it and i thought it was it's pretty wacky stuff it's fun i'm also excited that they put um it appears that the hulk that they've shown in the trailer for was it thor ragnarok yep uh they're borrowing from the hulk storyline for world war uh hulk, hulk. yep oh no yep. no sorry plant planet hulk world planet war hulk because when he comes back planet hulk uh, was the one yeah. where he's on that in that fight arena, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah. That Planet Hulk was uh, the Avengers. This the, the Avengers decide the Hulk is too dangerous, so they trick him into getting on a spaceship, and they're intending to send him to uh, like a just an, an a wilderness planet where he's the only sentient being, so he can just live alone, like he always says he wants to be left alone. Um, 
but the ship gets hijacked and he ends up on like a slave planet as a gladiator and ends up conquering it and becoming their king. So it was neat to see that reference in a non-Hulk movie that they're like, oh yeah, everything's mashing together in the, the Marvel movies. Yeah, it's really interesting, especially when you mention that, because World War Hulk, um, if I'm correct, the, the way they wrote it was he comes back and basically is so powerful that he stomps down on the Earth that it basically almost cracks in two. Yeah, basically, uh, at the end of Planet Hulk, he takes like his, his gladiators and uh, comes to the Earth to kick Iron Man's ass for putting them on that spaceship in the first place. So it's... it's uh, like, I don't know that they'd ever get to making a movie of that, but it was fun to read in the comic books, especially after Planet Hulk. Like, Planet Hulk was just, uh, like, a after a while you get bored of the same, like, Hulk stories. He's big, he smashes things, he kind of runs around. This was like, let's put him somewhere where he's he's not the biggest, strongest thing. You know, let's put him somewhere where he has to fight. So seeing him in an alien arena, an alien gladiator arena was pretty pretty fun. Yeah, definitely is, especially with like the ideas then. Kind of like, by the way, guys, just as an idea, if you ever want to go, why are they talking about comic books? Honestly, if you're as much of a nerd as both of us really are, to be fair, uh, <laughs> call a spade a spade, it's what we do. Um, what you have to understand is if you are just like this, find, find your thing that you're into, that your crowd is into. Like Carl and I connect over comic books as well. Because of that, we can write about them in our email sequences and build our marketplace up. And they're like, "Oh shit, they're into comic books." It's the yeah. same thing with it's the same thing with me and my jujitsu. Like I do Brazilian jujitsu, and I've met people in the most weirdest of places. And I'm like, you find they're like wearing a jujitsu t-shirt or they got a jujitsu bag or whatever it is, and you just say hello to them, and you find out where they train, what they're up to, and it's like an instant connection of what you can do and talk about. And it's brilliant. Yeah, and then uh, there's there's also marketing lessons to be learned from the world of comic books because it went from you know nickel pieces of basically trash newsprint meant to sell uh, advertisements to kids basically because that's real like like the mm -hmm. comic book publishers originally didn't make the money from selling the actual comic books they made the money from the ads and they just tried to cut their costs by getting the kid to pay a nickel or whatever for it. The, the trick is watching that business evolve over time because it went from where you could buy comic books at any drugstore or grocery store, they had a huge rack of them, to now like there's none. If you want comic books, you have to go to a comic book shop to get mm -hmm. them. And they don't even sell very well in print except for collectors. And when we were kids, it was huge. Like everybody was into comic books because it, it was in the middle of a boom. But now it's, it's gotten so niched down that the way I consume comic books now is I have an app and I pay Marvel like 60 bucks a year for Marvel Unlimited. And they've scanned in all their comics from like the, the like there's some from the 30s even scanned in and I read them digitally on my iPad as a subscription model. Because they, you know, just watching that business evolve because they sell information. So they're an information publishing business. How are they using the intellectual property they've already built to continue to make money? And I bet they make more money now off of old comics that have been out of print than they have in decades because they don't have to print them. They're, they're just scanned in and they're there if people want to read them or not. Yeah. 
I mean, that's actually an interesting way of actually seeing it because if switching over to a subscription model and giving all the content away for 60 bucks a year, if you look yeah. at it, um, I think it was, was it you or was it Ryan Lee? One of you guys put like a continuity offer where you're just like, yeah, pay me this amount every year and you get access to all the stuff I've uploaded. Yeah. It's, it's I'm, 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 I'm considering doing that for my stuff because it's gotten to where my catalog is so complicated and it's boring to do like rotating sales to have an excuse to talk to people about it so i'm thinking of just dumping everything into one big membership site and making it easy on myself but don't quote me on that i'm still thinking about it but yeah the the same idea the one thing that i wish the scanned issues had some of them haven't and some don't but uh like the the letters pages and uh marvel used to do this thing called the bullpen bulletin and the bullpen was the part in their office where all the artists kind of worked together, spitballing ideas. It was like what they call today an open floor plan office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they didn't have walls. They just had sections where their drawing tables were. And the comics would have like a little editorial from Stanley every month. And then it would be a little write up of what everybody was working on, what new stuff was coming out. And it really, it made it, like so that Marvel Comics fans were a community, even if you didn't know any of them, because you're reading letters from them and you're interacting with the creators. And they were doing this before the Internet existed with one extra page added to the comic book, uh, you know, really showing you like the behind the scenes. And uh, it it was like you could see it evolve, too, because like then they started to have comics conventions and then Stan Lee would go to the comics conventions as a guest and would write about him in his editorial and say, hey, here's where I'm going. So it really – it's interesting to me because I, I study like old role-playing games for the same reason, like their magazines and publications, because it's interesting to me to see how fan communities used to have to form before the internet existed because I feel like there's, there's valuable community-building lessons there. Like how, how did they – put this together and keep in touch when you couldn't do it from a phone in your pocket. Yeah. And how did they actually go ahead and have these convention halls that are insanely huge where people just go and play? I mean, mm-hmm. Magic Gathering still has that. But oh, yeah. Those... Like, uh, here in Atlanta, they have uh, Dragon Con, which I think is the second largest in the country. And when I first moved to Atlanta, it was two hotels. And this was, like, back in the early aughts. And now it, it's like literally five hotels completely packed for this one convention. And it's it's very – like they have a parade and there's like stormtroopers and uh, ghostbusters and all kind of crazy stuff. But it's huge. It's like it's, it's significantly a lot of tourist money pours into the city for that one weekend. And all for just imaginary stuff. It's all people into imaginary stuff. A- animation, games – comic books, science fiction, all that stuff, and it's all a huge amount of money just for pure entertainment. So I I, I don't know. I, I learned a lot looking from that kind of thing because that's what I want is fans that are that into my subject matter because they make the best customers. Yeah, they really do. Um, so I have a question for you that's a little bit off copy. It's more like to do itself stuff. I'm sure we. I'm sure you've been there too, because, you know, Lord knows I have enough times. Um, sure. So this, so this question really of like when you've had your confidence knocked for whatever reason, you know, uh, 
shitty sale happened, something really weird happened in your life. Because the way I see it with you, there's, there's like a trail persona of who you are, and some people can perceive that as, oh, Colin's being a dick, Colin's being like so-and-so. And, <laughs> and, and, and the guys that actually know you are like, the fuck are you on about? Colin's two different people. That, that's, <laughs> that's business Colin. This is regular Colin that we hang out with, tell jokes to, and hang out with. That's pretty much it. So my question is, when your confidence is knocked, how do you like get your confidence back up? And I ask that simply because I think the business persona had something to do with it, but I could be wrong. Uh, I mean, at, at this point in my career, it's really hard for my confidence to get knocked because I don't really do work for clients, so I can't have, I can't have a project shit the bed. And I only ever interact with and sell to people inside my community that I built. So it's essentially almost like a fan group. So I have a small army of people that basically will like anything that I do as long as it has my personality in it. And that's the thing. Like I teach copywriting, but copywriting hasn't changed for hundreds of years. I just teach it with my flavor. And there are people who prefer my flavor to anybody else's flavor. And people are allowed to like multiple flavors. So like anything anybody buys from me, that's what I try to I, – I teach people that if you want to create a product, you need to sell it to your competitors, right? So for me, my customers are people who used to compete with me for copy jobs rather than people who used to pay me to write. The reason that's important is because they, they can spend more money for the same information because it's more valuable to them. Whereas a client of mine only needs to learn how to write one or two sales letters for their products. A, a copywriter writes hundreds of sales letters over the course of their career, so they can get a lot more value out of learning how to write good sales letters. So you build a community around that, and they like the flavor of the way that you do it. It doesn't mean they won't also go buy you know, John Carlton's template and Harlan Kilstein's template and whoever else because they want a full toolkit. I'm just offering an alternative way of looking at the same problem. So back to your question, I kind of got derailed a little bit there that, that like it, I don't, I don't really have things that occur in business that'll shake my confidence in that way. Uh, there are offers that I might make to my group that they don't bite on, but I have plenty enough stuff that they like buying already. So I don't know. I've been I've been sort of immune to that since the group got going and really I don't know. Like people are like, "Oh, you won't you you're not even that good a copy. You only sell inside your group that love you." And I'm like, "Well, I'm, I made that happen, so I must be at least a little bit good at copy." <laughs> but also, why would I go challenge myself to sell to strangers when I make enough money to support my lifestyle selling to people who like me? You know what I mean? Like this is way better and it, like I like it better psychologically. It's way less stressful to just serve people that basically like you for you and want to buy the stuff because it's your point of view, right? So I recommend that as really helping, you know, uh, when you have a, a failure, especially if you're still doing client work and you're susceptible to having a pro project shit the bed and it might put you on tilt. If you're developing a fan group of, quote unquote competitors alongside of that sharing your your successes even sharing your mistakes building up an audience that come to know and like and trust you over time that's basically insurance against 
feeling like you fucked up and you ruined your career and you're all alone now, right? Because the audience mm-hmm. makes sure that that's not the case. So that's always been a nice safety net. But I mean, like, like real life stuff happens too. It's not just business stuff. Like my dad passed away in February, oh, and then uh, uh, the year before that, like uh, my youngest son Thomas was born in the minivan on the way to the hospital, which leads to complications. Obviously, not an ideal condition to be born in. So, like, he's fine now, but he had health problems for a while, and that was like, I. I took time off of work involuntarily because I just wasn't feeling creative or, you know, I don't want to write anything. I don't want to do anything. But having built this audience up and having built up content and products over time, basically, like, all I got to do is have a sale on a product that I made a couple of years ago and my income is protected. So I'm, I'm able to take time off because of the amount of work that I put in when I was feeling good about it. Um, so again, that helps because you don't end up in these spirals of like, well, I took time off work, but I didn't do any clients, so now I'm broke, so now I'm desperate. I'm gonna take jobs I don't like. I'm gonna do a bad job and I'm fuck up my reputation. I don't, I don't have that problem like I would if I was just a freelancer. So yeah. highly recommend to anyone listening, even if you think, oh, I'm just a freelancer. I'm not a product creator. I'm not a guru. I'm not trying to build an audience. Do it anyway. Just turn. Turn your focus from like your work and what you're working on for clients and and what you're learning, what you research for yourself, for your own education. Just take an extra 10 minutes a day, turn around and post it somewhere, whether it's a group that you start or a blog that you start, start an email list and just put it in an email, whatever you want to do, but just turn your work into something you're reporting on. And you're going to build an audience of people who want to be where you're at. Because even if you're just a little bit successful, you're more successful than people who are zero successful. And they want to pay attention to you and follow you. And by the time you feel like saying, hey, I could teach how to write a good sales letter, you'll have an audience standing there waiting for it to buy it from you. Because they've been following you all along as you've evolved. It's it's really easy to do. There's no good reason not to do it. And like I said, it it makes great insurance against the stresses of being a freelancer and having your income completely rely on you being able to put out work, whether you feel good about it or not. Yeah. You just basically answered the next question I was going to ask you. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Didn't even get to ask down, actually ask the damn question, but the question was what three pieces of advice would you give someone? And obviously you asked them, which is first make a product be, that's the first thing, make a product. Even if you don't feel like you can do it to just start, I would suggest, uh, would you say starting a community would be a good thing? You know, start cultivating that kind of community. Yeah, just uh, like uh, it doesn't have to be a quote unquote community because it can be just an audience, like uh, via an email list. Like an email list isn't a community; they don't interact with each other, but it is an audience. And you, through communication, like we said with the comic books, and uh, like uh, Halbert's newsletter was the same way, where it felt like all the subscribers were in a community, even though they weren't; they were just subscribers. So. Building an audience, like, like I said, the 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 hurdle to get over is most people think, oh, well, I'm just starting out. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm new at this. I've only been at it a while. I'm not a guru. You know, skip all that. What you're doing is pretend you're just sharing your work with colleagues, right? Like you're talking about your successes, your failures, things you're learning, researching on your own, solutions you came up with for clients. Just sharing that stuff will position you as an authority because the people who aren't that successful yet 
will see you doing it and learn how to do it by watching you. And presumably, if you stick at it, you're going to keep getting better and better. So as you get better, you're building an audience that's literally watching you evolve from where you started out to where you are. People tell me all the time, they're like, I remember seeing you talk at a Warrior Forum event when the Cult of Copy only had 1,000 members. I'm like, yeah, well, it's got like 30,000 now, but thank you. You know, it, it, it really works to where all you're doing is the one extra step of everything you're already doing anyway. Just turn around and start sharing it in some kind of way. Instagram, email list, blog, start a group, whatever you want to do. That'll build up your audience as you go. And then eventually they'll just be there for when you want to do a product. Now, for people like us, don't think you have to make your products the way like your clients do, where they put a lot of money into designing the, the graphics and making the website and getting all the JVs together. You don't have to do all that when you have your own audience. What you do is, hey, I want to do a training on this thing that I did that was successful for a client. If you want to come, here's where you pay and sign up for the webinar. And then you just teach it on a live webinar and you got paid to create a product. Now you sell the recording. Yep. Like super simple. And what's great about having an audience of other professionals versus trying to start a forum and get your randos in there, right? They are willing and, and appreciate a product that's bared down and raw that way, right? Like it becomes a selling point that it's not polished because it wasn't made for mass market audiences. It was made for other professionals, right? So it doesn't have all the bells and whistles and gloss and pretty colors because it's just me and you talking about business. So it's easier than you think if, you know, if you don't know who I am and you haven't followed my stuff and you want to learn more about it. Basically, I drank my own Kool-Aid and what I'm describing to you is exactly what I did to transfer out of doing copy work for clients. Eventually, the people in my audience and the amount of products I made by just teaching them, here's how I would write a sales letter for my clients. Here's how I would write an email sequence for my clients. That exceeded what I was making as a freelance copywriter, so that's when I retired. I just I completely quit even consulting or critiquing client sales letters because I could make a full-time income just serving the audience that had grown up around me and selling them the products that I already had. I haven't made my own new product in two years, I think. And that is part of the genius that is you, Colin. That is what you do. <laughs> I love that you do that. Guys, go check out cultofcopy.com. Hit up Colin. Follow him. Check his stuff out. The guy has an insane wealth of knowledge um, and how he uses it, including like some of his favorite book recommendations. Um, I still have some of those books. It took me a while to hunt them down, but I did finally <laughs> get my hands on, uh, what was it, Frogs into Princes? That book, yeah. took me, that, that book took me four years to find, believe it or not, like a good copy. Yeah. It's, I don't know if it's uh, out of print or yep. probably only like Vanity Press or something. I stole mine from a library. Oh, <laughs> I don't blame you. Mine, I had to buy mine from a library that was being shut down. So yeah, that's I a good place to... I managed to go and ask if they had that. I was like, yes, I'll give you money for this. Like, mm, that's good. <laughs> that's good. But anyway, dude, thank you so much for doing this show. And guys, as always, check out Colin's stuff, cultofcopy.com. And also, if you're a good person and like to share and be cool and stuff, which is being in the same room as really cool people, check out Cult of Copy on Facebook. Yeah, I'll tell you, um, the website cultofcopy.com is just a blog, and it's where I park like my product pages and stuff. 
but there's a link up at the top for group and that links to the Facebook group where the actual discussions are. Or if you go to Facebook, you can find the group there. But if you're not like advanced and you're intimidated by the cult of copy group, I have a group just for beginners called copywriting training wheels. So if you search that one, that one's a lot more friendly and people won't make fun of you for asking dumb questions like they will in the cult of copy. But uh, I, tr- I try to be welcoming to everyone, but you know, sometimes like you've been in the business a while, you just don't want to deal with, with newbie stuff. So I have a newbie place and I have a, an advanced place you can pick. You're welcome in either, of course. Yep. That's always the best way to be. All right. Thanks, dude. Thanks again for doing this call. And guys, I will see you on the next week's episode. My pleasure. Thanks.